0: And uh, if you are here with us this morning and you're without a Bible, we'd love to get one into your hands. There's men that are making their way down the aisle right now. If you just wave at them, they'll get a Bible into your hands and you can study along with us this morning in the Word. Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. We are studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And this is where we come. Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Not a good sign. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place... He looked up into the tree, saw Zacchaeus, said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And so he made haste, came down, and received Jesus joyfully. But when they, that is the religious leaders of the Jews, they saw all of this, they complained, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. I don't know who else you meet in this world, but sinners, but they had a beef with it. And then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fold fourfold. That's repentance. <laughs> They're willing to part with his money. And uh, this man's thoroughly saved, and thus Jesus declared concerning him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this passage, and we thank you for all that it is intended to accomplish in the men and women that stand before you right now that are not yet your followers, they are not yet Christians. And then, Lord, all the things that it is intended to accomplish in the lives of those of us who are Christians. And we pray that... By your Holy Spirit, you'd open this passage up to us, Lord, and just enrich our walks with you by instructing us a little bit further in the ways and the teaching and the life of Jesus. And we ask it in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Jesus is now in coming to the city of Jericho, which is where he is at this moment in time, just about 17 miles from Jerusalem and just uh, a little over a week away from dying upon the cross in the city of Jerusalem in order to provide us with salvation and the forgiveness of sins and to provide us with an access to a personal relationship with God. And as he's passing through the city of Jericho, we saw last week he healed a man by the name of Bartimaeus of his blindness. This event also occurred in the city of Jericho. Sometimes people read the different accounts of this, these, these events, uh, specifically the healing of blind Bartimaeus, of his blindness, and one of the Gospels talks about Jesus coming into the city when it occurred, and another one talks about him leaving the city when it occurs. And so do we, are there, the Bible has contradictions within it and that kind of thing, but all a person needs to realize is that In those days, there were two Jerichos. Uh, You had the old ancient Jericho that had been rebuilt uh, from ancient times. But Jericho was like the Palm Springs of that day. Palm Springs in its heyday is a little worn around the edges today. But Palm Springs of that day, beautiful weather, crops being raised all around and great water sources and all. And so Herod... Uh, The Roman uh, kind of governor there, he built a second Jericho that was a Roman Jericho. So it was possible to be leaving one Jericho and at the same time entering into the second Jericho. And so you've got this healing of blind Bartimaeus occurring somewhere between the two cities as Jesus is making his his journey. The whole point of these ten verses in Luke chapter 19, uh, the lesson that we're intended to take away from it, is clearly given to us there in verse 10, where Jesus Himself tell, tells us, For the Son of Man, speaking of Himself, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to learn about Jesus from this passage. That He has come into the world to shun us. No. Nope to seek and to save that which was lost. Sometimes you go to different passages in the Bible and you can read them, and right off the surface you go, boy, what's God trying to say to us here on that? It's not always, sometimes it can take some digging to figure it out. In this passage, it's real easy for us. Jesus tells us why it's in, in the Bible. Now, the means by which he's going to teach us this lesson, that he has come to seek and to save that which was lost, is through a particular tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. And today most of us when we hear uh, about a person being a tax collector or working for the IRS, we don't hold any kind of open hostility toward them. Uh, we may not like paying taxes, though the Bible says we're to pay our taxes and they have a place in, in, uh, in life and in government and that structure. God is behind that But sometimes when we see extraordinary waste on the part of government or we see taxes being used to fund what we know is clearly ungodly from the bible that that can make us begrudge how our taxes the taxes that we're paying and how they're being used and but we may not like it necessarily the taxes how they're being used but we don't tend in this culture to personalize our displeasure about all of that toward the person, or towards the IRS employer, towards the tax collector. But in the ancient world, a Jewish tax collector was considered the scum of the earth by other Jews. And I am not overstating it. They were detested. They were hated by their fellow Jews. And so the point is, is here in Zacchaeus, We got ourselves a real, live sinner. A sinner who is not just a sinner because of what's been done to him by circumstances or other people in life. He is a sinner by choice. He is a tax collector by choice. His life of being shunned and isolated and hated is something that he has brought on himself. This guy is in the eyes of the Jews, those that are watching all of this thing happen. This guy is an off-the-graph, hopeless sinner in their, in their eyes. This guy that Jesus befriends. Now, for the most part, tax collectors in those days were hated for good reasons. And in and, and those days, like today, they taxed virtually anything that moved They taxed you for being alive in those days. From the age of 16 on, you had to pay a tax for being alive, for encumbering the earth. They taxed you on how much you made. They taxed you on what you bought. They taxed you on what you sold. They taxed you, if you were a farmer, 10% on the grain that you raised, 20% on the luxury items. They had luxury taxes on the wine or the oil that you made. They taxed you on the vehicles that you used to transport your crop to the market based upon how many wheels that vehicle had. You were taxed accordingly. You were taxed to use the roads. You were taxed to sell in the markets. You were taxed everywhere you wanted to turn. Sounds familiar, so what's the point here? And and governments, kind of the same all the way through the ages, but I mean, you couldn't sneeze except that you were going to be taxed. You were taxed if you imported. You were taxed if you exported. You were taxed if you used harbors. There were taxes on everything, and we could go on and on all about it, but just uh, think about your own life, and you'll fill in the blanks just fine. it's very important to realize that the taxes that were being paid were not Jewish taxes. They were not going back into the land of Israel. Jews were being taxed by the Roman Empire. That money went back to Rome with no guarantee that it would support any kind of social security system for elderly Jews in Israel or to fix their roads or anything like that. This was a Roman tax to benefit Rome and to benefit the Roman Empire. And because Israel was a part of the Roman Empire in those days, they were a part of this whole system of taxation. Now, Rome's method of uh, tax collecting uh, among the countries that it occupied is that they would lease out a... Uh, the tax and customs duty of a particular district in a country they would lease it out to a man who was a native of of that population for a fixed sum of money that man would pay that was obligated to pay that fixed sum of money every year to rome from taxes that he levied against the people in his particular county of of the country as long as Rome received that amount of money every year from that particular district, they were great with it. They would then turn a blind eye to whatever that tax collector would do then in raising other taxes in order to generate income personally for himself. You could hardly devise a system of taxation that would was more... Um, Uh, that encouraged corruption than the Roman system of of taxation. Because the more dishonest and selfish and hard-hearted you were toward your fellow citizens, the more money you could make, and so in general this created uh, and attracted the very worst kind of people. Now, around the entire Roman Empire, tax collectors were generally hated, but they were especially hated in Israel and among the Jews, because here you had Jews hired by Rome, Gentiles, to tax their fellow Jews, even to gouge them and defraud them. So they viewed a Jewish tax collector as a traitor someone who has betrayed their nation betrayed their heritage betrayed their people, in order to join the Romans or the Gentiles in the oppression of his fellow Jews, and they condemned him for joining the Romans at a time of particular vulnerability among the Jewish people, occupied by the Romans. So even if a tax collector, Jewish tax collector, was honest, he'd be despised by his fellow Jews for taking advantage. Uh, of Jewish people and is supporting a system of abuse and exploitation. And so this was treason to them, and it was unforgivable. So a tax collector had a very, very low reputation among the Jewish religious leaders, but also among the common people. In fact, their, their, their name was a curse word, If you wanted to swear at someone but you couldn't swear, you'd call them a tax collector. And it was understood to be like a profanity that was directed towards someone. You remember when the Jewish religious leaders, and they can't swear in public... The Jewish religious leaders, in their hostility toward Jesus, when they publicly wanted to uh, berate Him and insult Him, the insult that they pulled out of their back pocket and publicly leveled against Him was that He was a friend of tax collectors. That was intended to divide His support. They are touching nationalistic roots in the hearts of Jewish people and saying, how can you follow this man who is a friend to this kind of scum in our nation? And that's how they they did it. And they openly would call Jesus continually a friend of tax collectors and there, it, it, because tax collectors were viewed so uh, low in the culture that even to be a friend of a tax collector carried a ter- terrible stigma. Tax collectors were classed together with robbers and murderers and prostitutes. They were all equally despised. We can look at it and say, come on, I mean, what kind of moral equivalence is there with that? A murderer and a tax collector? A thief and a tax collector? Except that if you were being gouged by one of these tax collectors... And to the degree that they became rich, it was food off your table. It was tennis shoes or sandals off of the feet of your children. And here they are, people dying of starvation and all of these kinds of things, but this guy's getting rich on the back of it. So they they saw these guys as just the lowest of the low. A tax collector was barred from the synagogue on the basis of Leviticus chapter 20, verse 5 where God declares, and I will set my face against that man and against his family. I will cut him off from his people and all who prostitute themselves with him to commit harlotry or idolatry with Molech. To them, to the Jewish people, just as prostitutes threw away All of their dignity, all of their godly character for the sake of money, they viewed tax collectors in the same way. A tax collector could not be a judge. A tax collector could not be a witness in a court of law. The Talmud taught that there were three persons to whom it was perfectly legitimate to lie to. A murderer, a thief, and a tax collector. Remember John the Baptist when he was preaching a message of repentance to the nation of Israel. Some tax collectors got convicted in their heart about the life that they were living. And they spoke to John the Baptist and they said, well, what in the world do we do? And John the Baptist, knowing... John the Baptist didn't say to them, oh, you know, I've heard that there are some good tax collectors and there's some bad tax collectors... Which variety are you? They were also notoriously bad. He spoke to them as a group and he said to them that they collect no more than what is appointed for you. Even Jesus acknowledged that the tax collector in general deserved his poor reputation in the culture. Matthew chapter 5, he said, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors uh, do the same? Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus is addressing how we're to take handle conflict before one another in the body of Christ. And he addresses the person that refuses to uh, adhere to church discipline or to listen to it. He said, but if he uh, he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. To give us an idea of how rare an honest tax collector was at the time, uh, there is a Roman historian who recorded that in his travels... He came across a town where they had uh, put up a monument to an honest tax collector. They were so rare that if a city had one, they felt obligated to honor him or to acknowledge it in their, their gratefulness for it. So these people were hated uh, by all of the people and they were hated for two principal reasons. Number one, viewed as traitors. And number two, because of their corruptness. So, and there's a a point to all of this. So when our passage tells us that Zacchaeus was rich, it's speaking a lot to us. This guy just was a lowlife. He was white-collar lowlife, but he was a lowlife. He was it just as cold and as heartless and corrupt as could be. In fact, when he hears the gospel and ultimately repents there in verse 8, he even confesses his corruption, the abuse of his power, by saying, if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, then I will restore it fourfold. You could make a fair living as a tax collector working for Rome. It was good it was a good middle income job, but you could not become rich and be an honest tax collector. And your dishonesty was directly proportional to how rich you became off of the position. And so here obviously Zacchaeus is just grossly overtaxed the people to amass this kind of Of wealth. Any Jewish tax collector would have been a shame and embarrassment to his entire family. No Jewish family would have been proud to have a Jewish tax collector in the family. And we know that Zacchaeus was a shame and embarrassment to his entire family for the choices that he had made here. He had disappointed every expectation they had made of him. You say, how in the world do we know that? His name. His name means righteous one. His name means pure When he was born into this world, that father and that mother named him, and in naming him that, they were placing upon him their desire and expectation for this boy. That when he would grow up, he would walk with God, and that he would be an influence for righteousness and purity among the Jewish people. And instead, he makes this choice in his life, to become a tax collector. And he'd chosen to do it. And so in Zacchaeus, we have not only a sinner, but we have a notorious sinner. And that's the point that I want to make about all of this. say, why in the world do you go on and on about all of that? Because it's my way. But other than that... But other than that, we have to sit and and look at this and realize that this is not the cute little man that our children sing about in the children's church. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. And we think about Zacchaeus and we think, here's a little guy of short stature and he climbs a tree and he's a little tree and Jesus comes up. And it's just like a fairy tale. I'm not putting it down. We teach our children what they can process at the moment. If I went into the twos and threes room and just laid that whole wrap on them in there, are you kidding me? They'd be screaming that they didn't want to come to church next week. you got to, on their level, Okay. Some of you are screaming, even as adults in this room, you don't want to come here next week. That's a conversation for your own car on your way home. God will straighten you out before next Sunday, and you won't wait to get to church next Sunday. But anyway, the idea is we can have in our mind that this was just kind of a, a sweet little guy that was just slightly misguided. He wasn't. He was a terrible person. He was a selfish, terrible... Everybody, I'm going to exalt myself at the expense of anyone and everyone else and at the expense of their kids, and I don't care. And I don't care what my reputation is with God over that, and I don't care what people think about me. That's who we're talking about in this scene. Now, notice in our passage you have two attitudes towards Zacchaeus there. You've got a group of Jews, doubtless religious leaders, who condemn Jesus for having anything to do with this tax collector. And and so to them, people like him are to be shunned, they are to be isolated. You don't have anything to do with those kind of people, which candidly is uh, the easier way to handle it in life. The Jesus way is a little bit harder, but this is a simple way. You just write those people off and you steer clear of them. The glaring problem with that kind of an attitude toward sinners or toward the lost or toward notorious sinners or Zacchaeus' is, is that if we all hold that view toward them, they never hear the gospel and they never end up saved. The other attitude was Jesus' attitude toward Zacchaeus. He knows all of these things to be true of Zacchaeus and yet he reaches out to him. Now, before we hammer the people that look at a Zacchaeus or a notorious sinner and their first inclination is to shun them or to isolate them, that group isn't like a, you can't paint them all with one brush. There's different kinds of people in in that group. There are legitimately one camp, I think, in that group who strictly wanted to avoid contact with sinners because they were concerned that that contact would spoil their reputation for holiness among God's people. And so that appears to be what's happening here, and, and Jesus exposed it as, as being unChrist-like; It's not like Him a, a at all. The, sa- the saving of any soul, no matter how... Uh, <laughs> How notorious a sinner a person is, if it means that my reputation as a Christian is sullied for a period of time for having contact with them in order to bring them the gospel, it is worth that happening. God knows how to take care of our reputations. But there's another group of people who... Uh, shun this kind of sinner, not out of a sense of self-righteousness or a sense of superiority, but rather out of a very legitimate concern uh, for themselves, for their children, their grandchildren, for other Christians, that they not be drawn into the sin of the sinner. And they look at that kind of person and they think to themselves, Listen, I don't know that we can have contact with that kind of person and it appears that it might be more likely that we would be drawn into their sin than that we will ever draw them out of their sin and into a life of godliness. And so they don't want to end up being influenced by the sin of the sinner. That's a real thing we have to deal with as Christians. And every single one of us deals with it. How close to the world can we get? Not for pleasure. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff or sin or anything like that. But how far can we go out into that world on the basis of how we are uniquely made? What kind of people and what environments can we associate with or go into where we are confident, I will remain the influencer in that situation and I will not become the influenced? Everybody who is serious about their walk with Christ has to process that not only, uh, uh, they have to process that on a regular basis in our life with the Lord. And so that's a legitimate thing that can happen where a person says, it's not worth the aggravation, we will just stay away from them uh, completely. So the question is, how can we be in the mix of the sinfulness of this world that is around us, how can we be in the mix of the sinners that are around us in, in life, the wackiness, the craziness of, of the fallen world that we're, we're in the middle of every single day and be an influence for godliness that Jesus wants us to be without being overcome by uh, the sin and the sinners of this world. And one of the things that I like about this passage is that we learn from it from Jesus himself, how to be an influencer and not to become influenced as we take the gospel into this fallen world. I want to look at a handful of things that we see in Jesus in his approach to Zacchaeus here that teaches us about his heart for the lost. The first thing that I think we need to recognize in Jesus here is to stop and consider how valuable he considers even one soul on the face of of this planet. And Jesus Himself tells us that He values every individual, not just six billion souls all at once, He values every single soul in this room individually and in the world and in human history to such a degree that He was willing to leave the glory of heaven to come and be born into this world, to die on a cross, to provide us with a gospel and a salvation, and good news in the light of, of our lost condition, our sinful condition, in order for us to know that we, we uh, have a way of salvation, and then to tell us about that way. I was at a pastor's conference a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago or so, in the East Coast pastor's conference in Uh, Philadelphia area. And the first speaker at that conference was a man by the name of Frank Drown. And um, he got up to speak. And uh, in that first session, he was also one of the speakers at this conference. This same uh, here in California this this last week. He's in his 80s now and he's retired and not completely retired. But 80 will retire you uh, concerning certain things in in life. It slows us down a little bit. And uh, so he came and he spoke, and he had served for 37 years as a missionary in Ecuador among the Javaro Indians. And they were notorious at the time that he ministered to them uh, for their head shrinking. So this is a difficult group to reach out to and take to Starbucks. Uh, In 1955... He was the one that led a search party for four missing missionaries in the jungles of Ecuador who had, with their wives, gone to Ecuador in an attempt to reach the Auka Indians and were ultimately killed by those same uh, native people that they were trying to to reach. And uh, uh, among them, famously, uh, uh, Nate saint and also... Uh, Jim Elliott, and he was personally involved in the retrieval of their bodies out of the water and, and then the burying them on, on, on the scene of, uh, of their death. And as he's delivering this message, he's just weeping through. It's, it's like it happened to him yesterday as he's sharing the whole story. And he's talking about how he and his wife, and they're all young people at this time, talking about over 50 years ago. And they go to the jungles of Ecuador. And they go there and they, they learn the language of a native people where no one but those people knows the language. They learn it from scratch. And they become fluent enough in it for the purpose of then taking that language and translating the New Testament in that language in order to bring the gospel message To them of God's love and of His forgiveness. And all of the hardship and all of the jungles and all of the sacrifices I'm listening to him lay all of this out. And he's not laying it out in a way of saying, let me tell you about all the sacrifice he went through. He's just talking about his life. And as I'm sitting there listening to that, because I live in Modesto and I serve in Modesto, I take everything back here. And and, and as he's talking about, what he was essentially communicating was the value that they placed upon human souls. In every soul of every man, woman, and child, in Modesto, in Salida, in Escalon, in Ceres, in Ripon, you name your city, Patterson, Riverbank, Oakdale, the soul of every single man, woman, and child is just as important to Jesus as the souls of the Alka Indians. And just because we don't need to buy an international plane flight to go to them to share the gospel doesn't mean that he doesn't love those souls as much as the ones that you got to buy a flight to go out and to reach. Jesus values human souls. And it's important for us to see every single person in this way. Not supremely on the basis of the foolish or sinful decisions that they've made in life, but as a lost soul that's in need of salvation. And sometimes that isn't easy to do. We have history with people where we've been burned by their decisions and what they are right now. But to view them this way as a person Jesus is still wanting to reach. Second, we notice in this passage how much Jesus genuinely loves people. He loves sinners. I don't think you can read the Gospels. Nobody can read the Gospels, the four Gospels of the New Testament, and not come away with at least in the top three understandings concerning Jesus is that he loved people and that he loved to be around people. He loved to be around sinners. He didn't have any choice. That's all that are in the world is is sinners. He loved sinners and he loved sinners. And he saw, I think, every single person as someone who could become something entirely different than what they were on the basis of simply being born again. And he really, really did want people to have the opportunity to be brought out from under the bondage of their sins, the consequences of their decision-making. He knew that if a person could just be born again, their whole life would change. And he loved people, and he loved to bring that message to them. And of course... The only way that we can represent the Lord properly is if we allow the Holy Spirit to give us that same love for eternal souls of men and women and to give us a love that is greater than the repulsiveness of their sin. And I'm talking as a sinner myself. And only God can do that. But it's a prayer that He answers. say, Lord... I pray that you give me a love for souls that is so great, a desire to see people saved that is so great that I will overlook their present circumstance in life, knowing that you can change that in an instant once they're born again. I noticed, third, that Jesus was willing to be in the mix of kind of the ordinary of life on planet Earth. He went places where sinners were and, and where you would run into people that weren't saved yet. Jesus could have set up an ashram. He could have set up a retreat center and said, listen, you want to see me, you come to me. I'm not going out there. That's a filthy old world. No telling what I'm going to see on a billboard. No telling what I'm going to see in this place or that place or this or what I'm going to hear people saying. Mm mm. But he didn't do that. He went out right out into the mix of, of the fallenness of the world. And he did so, again, because of his love for the lost, his desire to reach us perfectly holy. And, and yet, sinners felt at ease around him. Somehow, they felt that they could approach him, they could talk to him. And I think one of the reasons is is that he didn't put up any unnecessary barriers between himself and sinners. He took that halo and put it away. You know, and think. he just looked at him, and there was nothing that he did to himself. He didn't say, "Okay, this is where I glow and make people, you know, realize they can't get too close to me." There's a lot of sinners around. But he didn't do any, any kind of things like that that would put sinners off and, and communicate a sense of superiority or, or to intimidate them. And that was a new thing for, for Jewish people to see in those days. Because the Pharisees, for instance, the religious establishment, they were communicating their superiority and they were giving off a vibe of intimidation and in all kinds of different ways that we could come up with. When a Pharisee would walk through a crowded marketplace, he would take his robes and he would wrap them tightly around him so that even his robe wouldn't touch a sinner. Now you tell me what kind of bridge that's going to build to sinners. Yeah, that's a guy I want to go talk to about everlasting life. It's just not going to happen because you're not going to feel like you have the freedom to do that. And Jesus never put on any of those kind of airs, and he never did that kind of thing to, to, to people. He did not view sinners as the enemy. He viewed them as people that needed to be saved, and how in the world could they be saved unless someone who knows the way of salvation was willing to get close enough to them? I notice that he came to Zacchaeus instead of the other way around. He's willing to meet Zacchaeus in his house He's going to meet Zacchaeus inside of Zacchaeus' comfort zone here. And, and so he doesn't wait for Zacchaeus to come to the synagogue or to come to the temple or to come to church. There are people who will never walk into a church. They'll never walk into a building like this. Until some Christian has gone to them in their comfort zone and told them what God's heart is Toward them, We joke about people who look and say, Listen, I can't go into a church because the walls will fill in on, fall in on the place if I walk in. And that's kind of an old gag and an excuse that a lot of people use for not going to church. But there are people who may not use that terminology, but they don't feel that they're good enough to come into something like this. They feel like this is a place where you've got to have it all together first to even come in. Obviously, they've never seen you. And they've never seen me. But that's the vibe that's there. That God came into the world to make good people better, not dead people alive, and they are not a good person yet. And they need to hear from someone. It's not all about that. You making yourself better so that you can approach uh, God. I notice also that Jesus initiated the conversation with Zacchaeus. He's willing to get close to these sinners. Willing to get close to, to, uh, to, to Zacchaeus here and make contact with them. Again, not with their sin, but with them. Zacchaeus is absolutely a shunned person. He is an isolated, friendless person. The only people he can talk to and have a relationship with a bunch of people just like him when they have their convention. And he has... He deserves every bit of the isolation and the shunning that he's getting from the Jewish population. His own decision making. Sometimes when we're looking, saying, well, you know, who could, I, who could I befriend? Who could I strike up a conversation with and, and then have the Holy Spirit sh- have me share the gospel with him? Well, just find someone whose sin has shunned them or isolated them in life. There's a whole bunch of people in life you can't get to. they got lines around them. <laughs> They're so popular and all these things go on and you can't even get to them. Look for the friendless. Look for the one that has a stigma on their life and their family and in society because of the sins that, that they've committed. Look for the lonely. Look for the hurting. There's very, very, it's not very often that there's a line formed around them. Who stands alone? Every single time at the bus station downtown. Who always sits alone in the classroom at school? Who's always alone in the workplace? Who is always alone and talked about in the neighborhood or the apartment complex? And that's the person to befriend, begin to reach out to. I also noticed that Jesus was willing to invest time in Zacchaeus. Time's a valuable thing. Jesus' public ministry was three and a half years. Very, very short period of time. And yet he commits the better part of a day to talking to one person, coming to his house. Jesus is just now about eight days away from being crucified. Every second is valuable at this moment in time. Yet he takes the better part of a day to establish a relationship with a notorious sinner in order to bring a message of salvation to him. Amazing. Time is very, very valuable. And I know you value it. And I know our culture values it. You know how I know our culture values time? Because we go a thousand miles an hour every day. We realize it's finite, but because it is finite, it is worth more than money, it's worth more than anything. We just got so much of it. And so it becomes a big deal for us, even under the leading of the Holy Spirit, when we hear God say to us, I want you to invest time in that person. And almost always the first thing that can come into our minds as busy people is, I don't have the time. But this kingdom really moves forward on the basis of relationship. And so when God calls us to invest the time, my time isn't more valuable than Jesus' time, then I need to obey Him and invest it. There's a reason for it. He's drawing that person to Him. The Bible teaches in the last days that the world is going to grow more and more sinful, more and more corrupt. And the temptation that we're going to face as Christians is to disengage from it. It's going to become a stronger temptation on our part to build big, to buy a Christian island. Or maybe we could buy a Christian state. And this is the state that all Christians are in, Which, by the way, would be an absolute nightmare to me. To be there. They're all these Christians and now they're all going to fight among each other. We are, we are made to be in the mix or we're just going to be trouble for each other. We're made to be in the mix of this this crazy world that we're in. But the temptation will be to build high walls and get this siege mentality and not only is it church or the body of Christ as a whole in the United States or the world, but even individually just going to hunker down, I'm on my way to heaven and don't let any of those sinners get too close to me between now and then. And it's a temptation that we face. And we need to look at Jesus here and to realize, no, He wants us in the mix of things he wants us to be in one-on-one contact with people who don't know the Lord yet he wants us in the public arena of ideas he wants us influential in, in his calling on our lives in government wherever we can be for the Lord and and it, it takes time to do that and we need to engage the culture in this way all of us should have contact with the lost in this world on some level in our life in order to introduce them to Christ whether it's in our our homes or neighborhoods or schools or workplace or wherever it is and the reason that this is so important is they do studies on this kind of stuff and the data indicates that the average person who becomes a Christian within two years of their Christian life they will have virtually jettisoned every relationship with unsaved people. Whether it's family members or whether it's friends, they will find themselves at a point in their life where they'll one day wake up and realize, everyone I hang with all the time are Christians. The problem with that is that then the only people who are introducing people to Christ out there are people who haven't hit the two-year mark yet. Or people who wake up one day and realize that I am not a spiritual person on the basis of how few unsaved people I come into contact with in life, and they realize I have in an unhealthy way shut myself off From reaching people with the gospel and then choose to change their life to have a greater contact with the lost world out there. And so this is where we naturally drift unless we reach a place in our life where we purposely determine I am going to stay in the mix of what is happening in this world for God's glory and for the good of my fellow human being. Otherwise, we will tend to isolate and become unlike Christ, and then all kinds of problems begin to develop because of that. Now, having said that, let me be quick to add. There's nothing wrong with a person becoming a new Christian and God has pulled you out of an environment, He has pulled you out of addiction, He's pulled you out of sin, that He really does have to separate you for a couple years before He can plug you back into certain environments. There's nothing wrong with that. And what He will do is He will raise up other people to reach the people that you want to reach but if you got plugged back in there too quickly you wouldn't stand you wouldn't be an influencer you would end up being influenced and you would fall so i don't want to guilt you that when god does take us aside and it's real intensive time in his word we do really need to be around mostly christians at that time in our lives that's not a bad thing we just don't want to stay there for all of our christian lives now Number four, and there's only 70, so we'll, we'll be out of here in, in no time. And, and it really ties uh, to this. Jesus, when he went into any environment he went into and, and any relationship that he established with someone, he always was the influencer and not the influence. He always took holiness uh, with him. He never, he never allowed himself to be changed. He didn't have relationships that he, that he went into and we shouldn't either where you get into them and they're telling these jokes and we start to tell these jokes or they're doing this thing and trying to fit in and build a bridge through unholiness. And this is a goofy kind of idea that's been around now for a few years that you kind of reach the world by becoming like the world in its carnality and it does not work. The Bible teaches that we need to be in the world, but not of the world. The hearts that God is touching by His Holy Spirit to bring to Him, they will long for holiness by the time you're introduced into their lives. Or one day they will, after they've you know, known you and then they may shun us for a while, but they will come around where God is, is working. Jesus prayed for us. On the night before he was crucified, John chapter 17, verse 15, he said, I do not pray, he's praying to the Father, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Basically, he was praying for us that we would be in the world, he wants us here, but that we would not become like the world as we're in it. And so we're called to be salt and light, we must reject this idea of, well, we build bridges by becoming as carnal as this person and taking a hit and drinking and doing all these things, and then they kind of feel comfortable with us, and then I can share the gospel. It's, it's all bogus, so stay away uh, away from us. It's nothing uh, to do with, with Christ. Number five, wherever Jesus went, he brought the message of salvation with him. When he was in Zacchaeus' home, Obviously, he shared the gospel there because Zacchaeus repents and Jesus commends him uh, for his uh, faith, calls him saved there in, in verse 9. And as Christians, in every relationship that we have with the lost, there should be this always looking for an opportunity and opening to share the gospel with that Person, The good news that God loves them and wants to save them. And then finally, number six, I noticed that Jesus operated with the confidence that God was going to save Zacchaeus that day. So you notice there in verse five, he said, today I must. I got to go to your house today, Zacchaeus. You don't know, you're next on the menu. You get saved next. Wouldn't it be nice if you had that kind of clarity, Jesus' clarity in every conversation? Okay, this one's going nowhere. This one gets saved. That one's getting saved. It would be nice to have it. We don't have that kind of clarity and all. But what we do have is the knowledge that because you sit in this room today, and I stand in this room today as Christians, the fact that we are still on this planet means there are more people who will respond to the gospel When they hear it, there are more people to be saved. The Bible says that once the fullness of the Gentiles is brought in, the last person that's going to be saved before the great tribulation, the rapture and the great tribulation that follows, will be raptured into heaven. The fact that we are still here means that we are to share the gospel with the confidence that God is preparing people's hearts out there to hear the message that we deliver, and we'll say amen, or that's the truth to the message, when we declare, declare it to them. And we need to have that confidence as, as we share it. So to the sinner, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, Jesus wants you to know that He came into the world to seek and to save the lost, and that includes you. That's his autobiographical statement. It's really beautiful. He came into this world to seek you and to save you from your lost condition. One of the great things that happens is once you become a Christian, is you then look back and you start to see his fingerprints all over the place. And you realize for years and for decades... He's been leading you to that decision. It's wonderful that this God of the Bible, this Jesus, is a seeking and a saving God. And He loves you. And He wants to save you. We can tend again to think of this whole world. Well, He loves the six billion or six and a half billion, however many the population of the world is now. He loves you individually individually. And he's been seeking you all the days of your life. And he wants to save you this morning. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. are going to have a badge on that says "prayers" can going to identify them easily. And they would love to pray with you to receive Jesus into your heart and move from a lost condition into a saved condition. You ever been lost in life? It's fairly miserable. I mean really lost. You don't know where you came from. You don't know where you are in that forest. And you don't know how to get out. And that's where every one of us is spiritually. We don't know where we've come from, apart from God's revelation and His Word. We don't know what life is about apart from His revelation in His Word, and we don't know how to get out of our lost condition, apart from the help of God. But thankfully, He loves us enough that as we just give our life to Him, He moves us from a lost condition to a saved and safe condition. And it all happens in an instant in time because He's made it a free gift for each of us. What a loving God we have. That he would leave what he left to save us. Suffer what he suffered in order to save us. He values our souls. Even when we do not. Because he knows the change that can occur in a human life. This side of heaven. To say nothing of heaven itself. By simply being born again. By making my life is let's stand together and we'll pray Jesus we want to thank you this morning that you are a God like this you didn't have to be like this and we certainly didn't deserve this but every single one of us that knows you this morning we want to thank you lord for our salvation story I want to thank you for the fingerprints you left all over our lives as we look back and we see how long you were seeking us to save us, Lord, how long you valued our souls before we even knew we had a soul or an eternity. Thank you, Lord, for how good you've been to us. And, Lord, we pray that as we just read this passage out of a sincere desire to become more and more like you every day that we live in this world, that you would develop these same characteristics that we see in you in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would do it by your Holy Spirit, that you would supernaturally produce it in each one of our lives, this love for souls, Lord, to live like you in the midst of this fallen world. We pray for each person that doesn't know you, that stands before you right now, And we pray, Lord, that things would just click for them at this moment in time and that today would be the day of their surrender to enter into what life is all about with you. You know how to do that, Lord, and you know how to do it in each life and we pray that you do that in each one uniquely this morning and we ask it in Jesus' name, in your name, amen.